So I want to start with this uh, little passage we'll be working with tonight and for the rest of our, the weekend. And this is going to be Mark 7, verse 24 through 37. We'll be working through that whole passage, and I'm just going to break it up. And tonight, we're just going to work with this first verse. From there, Jesus set out and went away to the region of Tyre. And he entered a house, and he didn't want anyone to know he was there. I love these little moments where Jesus needs a break from being Jesus, where he needs to get away, to move uh, away from the normal routines and patterns and relationships around him and to go hide somewhere. It's, it's a common mistake for us to miss these little moments where Jesus is headed up to the mountains or off to the lakeside or running away from the crowds, looking for solitude, silence, quiet, a break, uh, retreating. And it's, a, it's an ancient pattern in the Christian faith, goes back into the Jewish tradition to take a break, to rest, to get away, to go on retreat. And this weekend, uh, we are in that tradition, that practice of withdrawing, finding some place away from our normal habits, routines, the roles we play. I was in a project um, called Way to Live was the name of the project. It was a group of 15 um, scholars, all PhDs, except for me. I just have a master's degree. And we each were paired up with a teenager. And the goal of the project, over three years, we were each supposed to take one aspect of human living, from eating, making decisions, how we spent money, grieving. Every, we were trying to figure out all the different aspects of a human life study theologians, and then write a chapter with this teenager, four other teenagers, on how Christians should do this, kind, this part of your life, how you, a Christian should make decisions, or how a Christian should uh, consume and, and purchase things. Obviously, this was a kind of product, uh, project that came out of the academy. This is what scholars do. They come up with these projects like this. It was grant-funded. And for two years, we would meet for four days at a time, uh, uh, every six months. And it was run by these uh, academics from a, from a graduate seminary. And these kids would have to read all these pages of theological texts, Bonhoeffer and Tillich and all this. And then they and this would go on for eight hours a day. We'd be studying these with lectures, seminars, at night, small groups. And we were doing all of this work in order to write this book. Now, of course, you know what kind of kids they chose for a project like this, right? These are the kids who are already are uh, overscheduled, overbooked, in all the AP classes, uh, kids who would read these kinds of texts and would take it seriously. So often what would happen each day is they'd be in these seminars, workshops at the end of the day, they would have to do their schoolwork. So they'd be up till one or two, and the next morning they'd be in these workshops with these scholars all day. And after the first year and a half, I began to get this sick feeling we were killing the souls of these kids. So we're at the Hyatt Regency in Chicago, and we've just had a full day of reading these German theologians. And these kids, these are freshmen, they're all 14, uh, and these other PhD people are doing this, and I just thought, I have to do something. I have to disrupt this whole program. So at the end of the day, I said to the students, hey, 
Um, there's one more meeting tonight. I don't know if they told you or not, but uh, it's in my hotel room. Here's my room number. Meet me there at 8 o'clock uh, after dessert. I'll see you guys there. So all 15 kids cram into my little hotel room. I've got a, a flip chart up there. And on the flip chart, I've got on the top written Team A, Team B, little line down the middle. And I have the kids' names split up, half on one side, half on the other side. And I say, here's the deal. We are going to play Capture the Flag here in the hotel. Now, Team A, your rooms are 20, 22. Your floors are 20, 22, 24, 26, 28, 30. You guys over here, Team B, you're going to be the odd rooms, 23, 25, 27, all the way up to 31. And uh, those are going to be your floors. Now, if anybody's on your floor, you can capture and put them in a jail. These are going to be the jails. They're going to be the ice machines on row 23 and the ice machines on 24. You can, here's the flags. I had these dinner napkins I took. These will be your flags. Hide them wherever you want. And I said, uh, now, the uh, elevator is going to be Switzerland. You can't get tagged while you're inside uh, the elevator moving up and down. Now, I said, um, if we have any trouble, you know, somebody calls security or something like that. It just so happened when I had come in uh, two days before for this conference, I had seen that the Southern Baptists were having a leadership meeting at that same hotel. So I said, you just tell them you're with the Southern Baptist leadership conference. <laughs> tell security, they'll call them, and I don't know what'll happen, but it'll disappear. And I said, now here's the other thing. If you've noticed, I have your names, I said to the students. I also have the names of all the professors. They're also on these two teams. Now remember, these professors are sharp. Uh, when you try to catch one of them and put them in jail, they're going to say things like, what's happening? I don't know what you're doing. I don't understand. You just put them in jail. They don't get out till they get tagged. Okay? This is the game. So there are two scenes I remember that night. The, fir the first was... Um, Frank, Dr. Frank Rogers, professor of spiritual life at Claremont School of Theology. Remember coming around the corner, and Frank is pushing the emergency button on the elevator, and he's perfectly horizontal with two kids pulling on his legs, <laughs> and he's yelling, This is Switzerland! This is Switzerland! <laughs> the second thing I remember is a kid named Alex Candle and I, we're coming around the corner, we're going to make a run at the flag, and just as we start to kind of come down, we're sneaking down the side of this uh, hotel floor, this hotel room door opens, and a guy I don't recognize goes, get in here! I said, what is it? Just get in here! We jump in the room, the guy shuts the door, and, he's, and I, he says, uh, there's an ambush around the corner. I said, who are you? He said, I'm just a guy at a convention. He says, but I want in. Whatever you guys are doing, I'm in. So we said, great, you're going to be our scout. So we would send this guy out to just walk up and down the hall and come back and tell us what was going on. <laughs> so we play this game until long after midnight. And uh, by then, all of the professors had been pulled out of their rooms, thrown in jail, played the game. Flags had been captured and lost. Points had been scored. Security had been called a number of times. Elevators had been stopped. You can actually keep elevators on a floor, we found out, by pulling out certain knobs. And uh, at list just after... Midnight, we all went down into the lobby, and you know, I do a lot of traveling, and, and hotel lobbies are the loneliest places in the world, especially hotel bars and all that kind of stuff. And, and we go into the bar, and she said, you know, we can't have these kids, and I said, listen, there's nobody else here. Can we just put some tables together, bring out some pictures of Shirley Temples, and just have a little party? And the waitress says, sure. 
And so we line it up, all the professors, all the kids there, we're all telling stories, and all of a sudden there's a little lull in the conversation and the laughter and the adventures and sharing all these stories, and I had to stop and just say, can I have everybody's attention? You know this feeling you have right now? This is the Christian faith. All the reading, all the theology, all the practices, all the work, if it doesn't have this kind of life, this kind of curiosity, if it doesn't have this sense of adventure, this sense of holy mischief uh, in it, uh, then it's not the Christian faith. This is what the Christian faith feels like. And all of our music and worship and themes is to cultivate this kind of aliveness, this sense of curiosity, this sense of being awake and connected to others. This is why we're doing all of it. And if it doesn't help this, then we need to stop doing it. And from then on, the whole project shifted. Suddenly, we were far more interested in what helped us cultivate that kind of life. You see, the Christian faith is an experience that we're passing down through the centuries. It's, it's, it's a certain encounter with love that awakens the heart, that enlivens the senses, that people had to describe. They couldn't describe it straight. They had to tell it in stories. They had to say things like, I was lost and then I was found. I was uh, blind and then I could see. My ears were opened. My heart fell awake. Suddenly people who were enemies became friends. It's an encounter of uh, being alive in the fullest sense that we're seeking to recreate and re-encounter and give ourselves permission to experience uh, and enjoy. So we're, this weekend is one of those experiments. We're on retreat, just as Jesus went on retreat. And what's so difficult about doing a retreat, you see, is most of us, enculturated by this system, right, we're like those students in Chicago who are with me. We feel like God is this thing that we have to work towards, that if I would only study more, if I only understood the Bible better, if I went to church more, if, we had, uh, if, if I read the right books, did the right things, then I would work my way to God. But the real truth is the spiritual life, the Christian life, is subtraction, not addition. It's subtraction, not addition. It's about letting go and receiving what's already present. It's about allowing that life that you crave, that probably has, was what drove you here. Uh, it's another attempt that maybe here something will get unlocked. Uh, uh, the barriers around my own heart will soften. There'll be some kind of relief from the anxiety and the drivenness. And uh, that a desire to come and to feel that kind of living um, is the very presence of God at work within you. And to, in order to allow that God to be felt and known, the first thing we have to do is stop. <sighs> Take a breath. Breathe. Let go of all of our perfection projects, all of our attempts at living the Christian faith, and just simply allow God to come over us, allow grace to rise up in us. The first work of the spiritual life is rest. It's rest. That's the oldest understanding of prayer, by the way. To pray in the, in, the, in the ancient tradition meant simply to rest, to let yourself rest in God, to sleep, to be held. To, you know, when we sleep, we give up control. You're no longer in charge. And so the first work for us to do is to rest. And, and when we rest, it's, uh, 
we have to retreat from the activities of the day. We have to allow ourselves to be, uh, well, it's an old, old spiritual formation where it was, is to be recollected, recollected from all the ways we've been fragmented out into the day. And so on a retreat like this, the fir your first job here is to rest, is to sleep. That means when we're doing exercises, if you fall asleep, hooray. It's a beautiful place to sleep. If you sleep in and miss the morning session, you get points. Okay? Sleeping counts. That's right. That's right. <laughs> if, even if you snore, it's okay. Uh, your first work is to learn how to rest. You know, the spiritual life is about relaxing. It's about relaxing and allowing God to love you. This is what Jesus does. You know, Jesus looks like a slacker compared to many of us. He doesn't look like he's working very hard. He'd be fired from most churches, <laughs> right? Crowds gather, he goes away. <laughs> you know, he spends half of his time by himself. He gives three years to the ministry. Wow, that's a great start. You know, I, I, you know many of us are just like, Jesus, would have been nice if you'd have written something yourself. We don't have four different versions, right? But Jesus lives in a sense of trust. He's not anxious. He's not driven. He trusts himself. He trusts God. He trusts the people around him. There's a sense of rest in him. And in fact, there's a commandment that's at the heart of our faith called the Sabbath. Remember, it's one of the ten. There's a, we have these, these ten rules God gives us, the ten commandments. Don't kill anybody and take a day off. Remember the rule around the Sabbath? It's almost like they're connected. Like if you don't take a day off, you may start killing people. So <laughs> we're going to put it in the big ten. Every seven days, it's a weird commandment. When we understand, don't kill, don't lie, don't steal. But then we got this other one. Every seven days, sleep in. Every seven days, you know, in, in, in the tradition, on the Sabbath, that's a day you would sleep in, you would, you would uh, uh, eat good food, homemade food, you'd be with family and friends. And God says, I command you to do this. Every seven days, I want one day to rest, one day not to work, one day to be with friends, one day to be out in nature, one day to read. One day to dream, one day to let go of your agenda, one day to step out of all the roles that you play, one day to nap, one day just to receive and to realize that everything is just a gift. Because, and, and the reason it's a commandment is because it's like God says, if you don't take that day off, you may think that life is what you're making of it, that life is on your shoulders that you're responsible to make life work, that life is a burden, not a gift. So every seven days, let it all go. Sleep in, have fun, go play, be with people you love, do the things you love. Do that as a spiritual commandment, right? What would, it, what would you be like if you did that? You know, there used to be that. Some of us older folks remember there used to be a day, and it was called Sunday, and it was a different day. And the stores were closed, and you couldn't get money from the bank, and people didn't go to work, and it was long and slow. In fact, when I was young, you would be so bored, <laughs> right? You'd go home, and uh, if you went to church, you'd go to church, you'd eat a meal, and then you'd lay on your bed. <laughs> nothing to do. You'd be sitting there for a long time, and then you'd start looking in the air. You'd say, what is this stuff floating in the air? <laughs> what are these little things floating in the air? 
And then you'd blow them into the, and the sunlight would catch them. They'd move around. You'd say, this one looks like a boat. You'd spend like an hour doing that. <laughs> That's why we have the internet. <laughs> and uh, that was where our creativity would show up in those slow, long periods. Well, this is what we're supposed to practice. We're supposed to practice things like the Sabbath. We're supposed to get rest. That's what we're doing here. And when we rest, the second movement that we're supposed to do is not only rest, but secondly, remember. When we slow down, when we let go of our agenda, we remember, we come home to ourselves and recall what our lives are about. So many of us are moving so quickly, do doing so many things, driven uh, by so many things in the culture, pulled one direction or not, depending on what text uh, comes in or what thing shows up on our phones. We're pulled in all these different rea reacting all the time. And when we slow down at a place like this, we begin to remember, oh yeah, this is how I wanted to live. We ha I run a storytelling project in my town and I had a woman 50 years old, her story began this way. She goes, I turned 50 years old and suddenly I remembered, oh yeah, I was gonna have a family, 50. She had been so career driven. She had been uh, a lead reporter at the Boston Globe going from one thing to another and suddenly she was 50. And, had f uh, and it was only because of the death of a friend that she finally remembered and came back home to all the things she wanted to for her life. Our second work is not we rest and then we also seek to remember. Desmond Tutu, Archbishop South Africa, was working on a uh, book and the president of Emory University heard that the archbishop was working on this and he was at a conference with him and he said, hey, we have a house on the campus of Emory University, it's down in Atlanta, and um, we would like you, we'll give you that house, you can live there, no charge, if you'd just be willing to step into some of our classes once in a while and, and, uh, and share some of your wisdom and your experiences. So the archbishop does this, he takes him up, he's gotta work on this book, he decides to spend a sabbatical at that house, a, sem a semester goes by, and they go to him and they say, would you be willing to teach a class? You know, it's been nice to have you step in, but would you, any interest in teaching a whole class? And he says, yeah, I will. I'll teach a class, but I don't want to teach in the normal academic uh, programs here at Emory. You're connected to a theology school, Candler School of Theology. I want to teach it there. And I want to teach a course called God's Love. And I'm going to put some requirements on it. I only want those students about to graduate, and I only want those students who are going into the ministry. I don't want academics want practitioners who are going to go and become pastors. So they put those requirements on. My friend Michael Horinick is in that first class. And he says, the arch, that's, that was his, that's what they called him, the arch. The arch walks in, and uh, he's talking, and there's a class full of about 80, 90 students, and nobody's really listening. And the archbishop is uh, sensitive to an audience, and so he just stops. He notices people are kind of looking around, and he says, uh, uh, I notice people are kind of restless. What's going on? You know, I've forgotten, forgotten something. Is there, am I doing something wrong? And somebody says, well, um, we're looking for the syllabus. Is there a syllabus? <laughs> now, when you're in school most of your life, and then you go to college, and then graduate school, like these students had, they're looking for a thing called a syllabus, which tells you what the class, what you're going to do, what you're going to read, what the tests are, how they're going to grade it, and these students were looking for it. And the archbishop says, oh, there's, there's no syllabus. In fact, there's no reading. There's going to be no tests. Uh, in fact, my plan is I'm just going to give everybody an A. Well, this really makes everybody restless. <laughs> this sounds like communism. You know, just give us all an A. And uh, Tutu says, you know, 
God has very low standards. God has very low standards, so so will I. Everybody gets an A. And he says, uh, and here's the deal. He says, all we're going to do in this class is I'm going to tell stories of when I encountered and experienced and knew God's love. And then after a while, I'm going to invite you to remember and recall moments when you experienced and encountered and knew God's love. That's all we're going to do. He said, here's why. I know you're about to graduate after four years in this institution. I know you've taken tests and exams on biblical hermeneutics and theology and church doctrine and preaching. He said, but if you leave this school and you don't know God's love in the marrow of your bones, you leave here with nothing. You leave here with nothing. And so all we're going to do is remember those moments when we knew. Those moments when we knew. When was the last time you had a chance to breathe and to remember the moments of your life that were sacred to you, that were sacred, where you had some awareness of a compassionate source beneath your life, some deep connection you felt with another human being, some moment when you could feel the mystery and magnificence of the created world, everything filled with color and life. The moments when you sat quiet and silent in your bedroom, maybe overcome with grief, and yet in the middle of it, you felt the tears of another presence grieving with you. When was the last time you allowed yourself to remember? The last line in the book of Matthew, Jesus says, remember, you're going to forget. You're going to get busy. You're going to think your life is what you're making. So you have to stop and remember, Jesus says, I'm with you always even until the end of the age. And we forget. And we make life so difficult and lonely and isolated. We feel so disconnected from others. We feel by ourselves in this world. And the solution to reconnect to God isn't to do more. It's to surrender, to give up, to do less, to sit, to wait. So we seek to rest and remember to trust our experience, trust what we know is true. And lastly, we seek to just receive. Jesus is a good receiver. It's one of the major differences between Jesus and the rest of us is when someone wants to give Jesus something, he says, sure. Wants, you know, people want to make him food? Yeah, I'll come over. And we'd, what would we say? Well, no, um, you know, you guys cooked last time you really should be coming to our house somebody says thank you for something you've done and we try to push it away or we may say oh you're welcome but inside we think we fooled them they have no idea how i screwed that up you know we have such difficulty receiving and yet jesus is willing to just receive in this passage he takes off from his ministry from his work hides out in this other town to get some rest to allow God just to simply love him without having to do anything for it. One of the interesting things, you know, one of the things I wonder about is what was Jesus's experience of God? What was his experience of God? And we get a little glimpse uh, through a book uh, Stephen Mitchell's written called The Gospel According to Jesus. In the book of Mark, Jesus comes back to his hometown and he's called by the local people who knew him as he grew up the son of Mary. 
Now, the son of Mary is an insult in that tradition. To be called, for a male to be called the son of, and then with their mother's name, is similar to being called a bastard. It, It was a derogatory term, and he's referred to that in that passage, a fatherless kid, an outcast. And in uh, 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 Deuteronomy, a child without a father was not allowed into the temple. Not only were they not allowed, neither were their children or their children's children. This is how shameful it was to be a fatherless son. This is Jesus' experience growing up, known as the son of Mary. And so you can imagine what it's like in that opening gospel passage that's in Mark and Matthew and Luke when he's baptized and he goes down into that Jordan water and comes out and suddenly hears that voice say, you are my beloved. You're not the outcast. You're not the bastard kid. You're not on the margins. You're not the one who stands outside the temple. You're my beloved. And we can understand why he responds by calling that voice, that presence, Abba, Papa. Uh, Right in the center of that wound, he hears himself named as beloved and ends up using this intimate, childlike phrase for the presence of mercy and love, this divine presence of God, Abba, Jesus calls him. And our work is to be able to receive that same naming, is to know our name and to allow God to call us beloved and to say, yes, that's my name. To not say, well, part of me is, well, the good part, well, the believing part, well, the one who tries part. No, all of me. That is my name. That's who I am. And to allow ourselves to simply receive it. I'll end with this uh, this story. Um, we had a neighbor come by, and um, we didn't know him very well. His son and our kids played together in a park that was between our houses. And the neighbor showed up, and he knocks on our door, and he says, uh, his name's Steve, and he, Steve said, he said, uh, I'm in this group, this is kind of a strange request, but I'm in a group, it's children of alcoholics. And we're, you know, and each of us takes a turn to tell our life story. I'm going to be telling my life story, and I'm supposed to have people who know me in different parts of my life to come and hear it and witness it. And I don't really know anybody in this neighborhood other than you guys, our kids play together, would you come? So we went, we heard his story, and at the end of it, there was a reception, and much of Steve's uh, suffering was around, happened around a graduation ceremony. And so at the end, uh, we're at this reception, and we meet this woman, and we're talking, and we're talking for a long time, and she says, you know what? This was such a powerful night because all of my suffering has been around graduations. And she told this story. She said, when I was a little girl, we lived in an in a, in a, uh, upper-middle-class suburb. My parents were very accomplished, but both of them were alcoholics. And when they would come home, the curtains were always shut. They would immediately start drinking. They often passed out at night. They often forgot to feed me. I'd have to feed myself cereal, crackers. Uh, If you look at pictures of me, my clothes are always too small. My hygiene isn't very good. My hair is not cut. You can tell no one is caring for me. And I was uh, uh, alone most of the time, a lonely child. I went to school myself. I didn't talk to other students. And I was just a lot of sadness until in sixth grade, I noticed something about myself. And that was 
I was smart. I, I knew what the teacher was talking about. I, I, I got math. I could do the science. I loved to read. So I started staying at school longer and longer, and teachers would work with me. And when I went to high school, I still didn't have friends. I didn't have a social life, but I worked hard at school. And when high school graduation came, I was so excited because in that graduation ceremony, if you had a high GPA, you got to wear a gold cord over your robe. And for the first time in my life, I was going to be recognized by my peers and by the community as someone who had worth, as someone who had uh, uh, value. She goes, we went to this graduation ceremony. It was held in the school gymnasium. And um, I went up on the stage. My mother was so drunk and bombed on alcohol that day, she didn't even show up. My dad showed up with a buddy. They're standing in the back. And she said, we're standing there for this ceremony. I'm so proud. And then the principal makes this terrible announcement. The principal gets up there and says, uh, we have a lot of students. We have a long ceremony. So when we give the diplomas, I want to ask that no one applaud until all the diplomas are passed out. And then we'll all stand up and applaud them all together. She said, the reason this was a terrible announcement is no one listened to it. So what happened is uh, they would say a name and some group of family members would stand up and cheer anyways. And sometimes other students would cheer. And even though the principal kept saying, hey, we need to keep it silent until the end, every single student had someone standing up and cheering. And I got this dreaded feeling. When they call my name, it'll be silent. She said, I started staring at my father, just trying to transmit to his brain, please make some kind of ruckus when my name's called. But she said, instead, they called me up, and I was the only one to walk across that stage in silence. She said, I was so ashamed that when the ceremony ended, I took my robe and the cord and my diploma, and I threw it in the garbage can, and I skipped the after party. I just walked home weeping. All the shame and burden of what I'd worked to erase had come over me in front of everyone. So I went to college. I was still a very isolated person. I did well, but I skipped the graduation. I went on to law school, did law school, and went to my law school graduation, walked in. It was in an auditorium and immediately had this flashback of what had happened to me in high school. She goes, I saw a group of kids. I walked up to them, showed them my name in the program, and then paid them to cheer for me when my name was called. I was so scared that this might happen again. And she goes, believe it or not, it did. I got up on that stage. The dean made the same announcement. Wait till everyone's name is called. Nobody cheer until the end. And for the second time in my life, I walked across an uh, auditorium floor in silence. That was the night, she said, I became an alcoholic. It was so scarring and so humiliating that I lost 10 years living in cars, in women's shelters, living with one bar to the next. I never practiced law, even though I had been one of the top students at that school. She goes, just two years ago, I started pulling my life together, went through AA, I met a man, I got married a year ago, and just three or four months ago, uh, she said, I had my uh, first birthday party. It was her 40th birthday. I had this 40th birthday party. And she said, I'd never had a birthday party before. And my husband uh, knew that. And so I show up into our little apartment. 
uh, she worked, was working as a paralegal then, and she goes, I, I come back off of work, go inside, and hooray, and there's surprise, and everybody's dressed like kids. And they've got the little party hats, and it's pin the tail on the donkey, and it's the kids' cake, and it's balloons and streamers, and we play all the kids' games that I never got to play, and everybody gives me all these gifts, and it was fantastic. And I'm having so much fun as people from AA and people from work and people from the apartment complex, and my husband designed all this. And then at the end, we all sit down, and he says, gather on the television, and he puts in a little DVD. And it's a DVD of my life, and there's people... Uh, kind of talking about who I am and saying all these beautiful things. And there's music playing, and he found pictures of our, uh, from my childhood and other things, and it's all this kind of montage. And then at the very end, all of a sudden, up on the screen, there's the law school graduation. And it's the moment right as they're announcing my name. And they announce my name, and I watch myself stand up on this video, walk across the stage, except this time, her husband, who's a sound engineer, had gone into a university auditorium and had recorded his own voice over a hundred times from different places in the auditorium. Hooray! Fantastic! This is great! And then looped it all together so that this time, when she walked across the stage, instead of silence, there was her husband in a hundred voices cheering. She said, it was so shocking to me that before I even knew what I was doing, I stood up and yelled, turn it off. Th that's not what happened. Turn that off. And she said it was awkward. And my husband was humiliated. And he ran and turned off the television. And I went into the bedroom. And I just fell apart in these angry, furious, shame-filled tears. She said, everybody left. My husband came in, and I just told him, I can't believe you showed that. That was such a difficult night. You know how painful that was. And you just show it at a birthday party to all these people like it's nothing? And she goes, and then I just wept for hours. Just all the work, all the humiliation, all the ways I had been trying to prove to myself and others that I had value. All of that just came out. She said, until about 3 in the morning. And I walked back out, and I put that DVD back in. My husband wasn't sleeping, and he came out just quietly. And I fast-forwarded that, all the images until I got to that graduation ceremony, and I pushed play. And I looked at this young woman who was trying so hard to prove her worth. And I heard her name called. And I watched her walk across that stage, and this time I listened, and I heard my husband and over a hundred voices telling me, you are my beloved. With you, I am well pleased. You have worth and value to me. She said, my husband started apologizing, saying, I'll take it off that tape. I never should have shown it. But I turned to him and said, you know what? I like it. I like it. Let's leave it as it is. This is the spiritual work. And it is a work to listen, to receive, to rest, to remember, to allow God's naming to come inside 
and to hold you and care for you. It's subtraction, not addition. It's trusting that voice that you've always known but have maybe never given yourself permission to believe. That's why we're here. So I just want to take a little moment. We'll do some longer exercises tomorrow. And, and these exercises, I don't know if they, they're just experiments. We're going to try some things. Some of them you're going to hate and, and you're not going to do them, and that's fine. And some of them uh, might, might uh, surprise you. And uh, we'll do most, some, some, some stuff tomorrow. But uh, I want to do one just little exercise as a way to kind of close, close the evening. There's an, there's an old prayer that comes out of the Jesuit tradition called the awareness exam. And basically, what you do is you look over the day. It, it's it's if, as if God could take you and you could go back from when you first became conscious this morning, wherever you woke up this morning. And you and God, or you and Jesus, walked through all the moments of today as if, as if someone had made a little photo album with all the pictures of every moment you had today, and you were just looking through them with the Holy Spirit or with Jesus. And while you're looking through them, to just have this uh, uh, question with you. Where was I most grateful today? For what moment am I most grateful? And as you go through all the little moments of today, allow even the little experiences to be there. Uh, a smile with a stranger at a coffee shop. You know, uh, the color uh, of the leaves out your back window. Uh, a kind of a quiet moment when you were remembering your children as you were driving someplace today. Whatever comes to you. And so I'm going to invite you to, I'm going to lead you through that prayer. I just want you to look at today. From when you first woke up all through the little moments with that, having that question present, when was I most grateful? And then as one moment shows up, I want you to hold it like a shell that you found on the beach, you know, or some interesting stone you find in a creek. And I just want you to look at it from all the different sides and just see what it might have to tell you about your life today. Okay? So uh, I'll guide you through this prayer, but I just want you to invite you, as we begin here, well, um, why don't we begin this way? If you'll... Take everything out of your hands so your hands are available. And just have your hands with your fingers curled in. You just rest them on your lap. You just rest them on your lap with your, with your fingers curled in. And then I want to in invite you just to close your eyes, just as a way of letting go of all the, uh, the visual distractions. And just for a moment here, just within yourself, offer this night, this time, to God. And for just a moment here, just notice what it's like to be in the presence of God, in the presence of other people longing in the same direction. Notice what it's like to be here with your fingers curled inward. And then as you're ready, I invite you just to gently begin to uncurl your fingers. And just for a moment here, 
Notice, notice what it's like to be in the presence of God. In the presence of others. With your hands open. And then as you rest in this space, I invite you to ask Jesus or to ask the Holy Spirit to go with you over all the little moments of today. From when you first woke up this morning, through the morning hours, through noontime, through this afternoon and your preparations and travel here. Through all your experiences and encounters in this place up till this moment now. And as you go through your day, just ask God, for what moment was I most grateful? And as some experience comes to you, just hold it for the next few moments and see what it has to teach you. And I invite you just to allow gratitude to come over you for whatever has occurred within your prayer. Then gently begin to bring your attention back to this room this time this gathering of souls so I want to invite folks as we bring our attention back to this this space uh, to just take a, a couple of minutes to maybe turn to one or two people around you and just share the moment that came to you today the moment of gratitude, if something showed up. What you, you may have noticed in the prayer was, I am so tired. <laughs> or I forgot to do four things today. But, um, but if some moment of gratitude showed up, um, I just invite you just to share it. Take turns with one or two people around you and just share that experience. Um, and then I'll bring us back together here. Okay, just take a few minutes, turn to somebody next to you. So we're going to uh, we're going to break here in just 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 a few minutes, and then we'll we'll be done for our for the evening and hear some housekeeping items. But I just wanted to just give us a chance. Uh, what did you notice, either in the prayer or in the sharing, if if anything? Yeah. Yeah. So so every so you noticed. People were thankful for, for kind of strange, unusual things that were probably kind of small, maybe. Weren't, they, were, they weren't like these big, life-changing things, but they were grateful for them. Yeah?
instead of, I, I wanted to be in this group next time. <laughs> what else? What others? What did you notice? Yeah, back here. Your gratitude moments were relational. So just, just a sense of gra gratefulness for our connections and interactions with others. Okay. Yeah. What else did you notice, if anything? Yeah. Yes, you're at this different pace, and, and in recalling that, you remembered, God, it was nice to be in the fresh air and, and uh, just to enjoy the day and looking forward to what you had today. And yeah, it was great. Anything else? Yeah. Yeah, so, so, it, so we have these beautiful, powerful experiences sometimes or just very touching or just little whispers of grace, and then we go on to the next thing and the next thing. And um, in fact, I, I would suspect some of you remembered moments that you may have never remembered again <laughs> if I hadn't did this exercise, that it's kind of nice to go back and capture. Then you use the phrase, not only capture it, but relive it and remember it and recall it as this little moment, and it's a little treasure from today and to share it with others kind of enlarges it uh, in some ways too or even to, to hear someone else's experience is a gift mm -hmm. okay well this is the kind of thing we're going to be doing this uh, this weekend slowing down recalling remembering and savoring these moments everything you need is already here there is no place you need to get to in the spiritual life you're already there it's just a moment of, it's just about receiving it, okay? There are no stages, there's no levels, there's no ladder, there's no grade system. It's everything you need is already here. It's just allowing yourself to receive it, okay? And that's all we're going to do. Okay, amen. We'll let Danielle and... Thank you for Mark. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.